When it comes to death and life, we have a choice. We can either allow our dying to creep up unnoticed until we fade away, or we can live life with purpose and choose to die well. Hello, and welcome to Brookings First United Methodist Church's podcast, Conversations with Pastor Pete. This season is called Dying on Purpose, in the hope that this series will help us to think about death and living life well. This season will evoke differences of opinion. Not all Christians see these issues in the same way. These differences are a result of varying experiences in life, the way in which the Bible is read, and strongly held opinions. Our Methodist tradition has always made space for differences of opinion. Methodist founder Rev. John Wesley urged tolerance of different opinions. He wrote, Right opinion is at best but a slender part of religion, and frequently is not a part of religion at all. We hope this series will teach us all how to live and let live. I'm going to invite us to pray together. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray. We pray that you guide our thinking and enable us to follow you more closely. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I am anticipating that Larry Ort will join us. Pray for him. He's got a long way to come, I know. I'll refer to these notes, but I'm going to begin with a reading of Scripture. My favorite passage, please make sure that if you guys come to my funeral that this psalm is the psalm that is read. Psalm 139, you don't necessarily have to read all the verses, but read some of them. But I'm going to read verses 13 to 16. The psalmist prays a prayer, and I begin to verse 13, Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Just a wonderfully intimate picture of God who sees us while we are still in our mother's womb. And the way the psalmist frames it, it is God who forms us there. That that is the place that life is formed. 
And I think it's good for us when we begin to be proud of the way we can genetically engineer life, that we remember that it is God who gives life. So I'm aware that I'm wandering into a cultural minefield because this country is gripped by discussion around abortion. And I need to add, it's something unique to the United States. It does not happen elsewhere in the way that it's happening here. This country has made abortion a political football. The country I come from does not have this kind of discussion. It is not the incredibly sensitive thing that we all cringe to talk about. The way to kill any dinner conversation is to say to the people at the table, so what do you guys think of abortion? In this country, Some of what I wanted to do was strip off the cultural debate, which is a debate all of its own, and talk a bit about the faith debate. What are the things you and I should be thinking about? I do want to remind us it, it is a discussion, an ethical discussion, that happens around the world. It's, it's not the United States' possession. And, and as I've started out by saying, and the sadness is that it's literally become part of the politics of this country, and there are politicians who stand up and act like they are experts on abortion. And I think we all have half a suspicion that there might be dissonance between what gets said publicly and what might happen privately if one of their daughters were to fall pregnant and things were to go wrong. I'm hoping we can have some kind of more thoughtful approach. So if I can begin by declaring myself, I'm going to walk us through um, a little bit of the um, ethical debate and then invite discussion. I need to say to you that I am pro-life. All life. And when you hear me say I'm pro-life, please don't filter it through the political debates that you've heard. I favor life. I believe life is given by God. And I believe that we should do everything in our power to protect life. Not just life in the womb, but life outside the womb as well. Which means the life of a child in the womb, the life of the mother who carries that child, and then the life of that child once that child is born and while that child grows. I am pro-life if you would understand that to be 
my belief that God gives us this gift of life. And from the cradle to the grave, we ought to be doing all that we can to enhance, protect, uh, look after the quality of life of people. I do understand that in this country, when you use the phrase pro-life, it's a pretty narrow phrase. I note on page one of the handout that I've given you that there is in fact a pro-life position on abortion. This position argues that abortion is murder because from the moment of conception, the child is a human being which has a right to life. Because a fertilized ovum already contains the complete human DNA, it must be regarded as a human being. And various passages from scripture have been used in this conversation in the church. Psalm 139, Isaiah 44, Job 10, Jeremiah 1, all stress God's involvement with people before they are born. That was the position I started in. It is God who creates life within us. Let us as human beings never become arrogant enough to think that we make life. I do want to pose some unanswered questions. To say that abortion is in all instances nothing but murder is to close your eyes to the complexity of the moral issues surrounding abortion. For example, what if the life of the mother is directly threatened by the continued existence of the unborn? And the awful dilemma that a doctor faces when a doctor has to choose between a mother dying or the life that she's carrying dying. And sometimes they both die. In cases, what about spontaneous abortions or miscarriages? In cases where the pregnancy is far advanced and miscarriage occurs, the church seldom provides pastoral help or even offers a funeral. And I just said, it is a challenge for us all as Christians. How do we value the life that a mother has carried when she loses that life before full term? And I've sat with many grieving mothers who've carried this child inside them for months and then lose that child. And somehow the society around her say, well, better luck next time. As if the life you've carried has no value. A, a, a complete dissonance because we talk about that life as being treasured, but yet we don't have the rituals in our society even to bury that life that was carried.
There is a pro-choice view. This position emphasizes the pregnant woman's right to choose whether she wishes to give birth or not. No one, not the father, the doctor, or the church should be able to make this choice on the woman's behalf. And there is value in this position because it emphasizes the right of a woman to have control over her own reproductive capacity. There are women who all over the world who live in societies where men alone make decisions about women and babies. And this position insists that the rights and views of women must be acknowledged. After all, they're the ones who will carry, give birth to, and over many years, rear a child. And I find it appalling in so many places that the men are the ones who make the rules that women have to live with. Somehow, because we men are bigger and stronger than women, we insist on our right to decide on everything about a woman's life, including her body. The problem with this position, in my opinion, is that it provides no moral compass for making decisions. Each woman is left to make the decision on her own, at the expense of the father of the baby, the family of the mother, the community will provide a support system for the child. And if I can add just a rider that says, it's a heartbreaking, lonely place when you're a woman, you discovered you're carrying a child and you're faced with circumstances that make you think that you can't carry this child. I am wanting to argue for what I'm going to call a limited, selective view of abortion. Somewhere between the pro-life and the pro-choice approach which seeks to balance the rights of the life in the womb, as well as asking whether there are some legitimate instances in which abortion can be justified. The starting point of this approach is that abortion is not simply a medical or a legal issue. It is a religious issue. And we as religious people need to be part of this discussion. Because abortion involves the destruction of life, it can only be permitted on the basis of a higher ethical motive. I do want to suggest that it is naive, it is way too simple to simply equate abortion to murder. As if a one-liner solves everything. I do quote from Exodus 21. Um, there was a fight between two men, and in the process, a pregnant woman was, it was injured. It led to a miscarriage. And the leadership sat down and said, is this murder of the baby or not? And ultimately, they landed up saying, 
the one who injured her is fined rather than executed because losing her baby had a legitimate reason. I'm trying to anchor it, trying to say, this is an ancient debate. We are not the first people to tackle this. But at the same time, life in the womb has all the potential of a human being. I like, someone suggested, it is life in the process of becoming a human being, and God is at work in this process, and so abortions should not be taken lightly. No one has the right to interfere in this process of the becoming a person. Issues such as the danger to the life of the mother, rape, or the viability of the unborn life are important factors in deciding whether to give birth or not. What I'm trying to do is hang on to the idea of the sanctity of life, but this means both sanctity of life in the womb and life of the mother. An extremely difficult balancing act. And I am going to suggest it is a lot easier if you can say, just give me the rule and I will like it or not like it. It is harder to have the discussion that asks about the value of the life of the mother being weighted against the value of the life of that child the mother is carrying. Let me stop for a moment. Welcome, Father Larry. Thank you for joining us. We have a real priest amongst us. <laughs> um, did, did I lose you? And, and I'm, you know, this is taken from a lecture I did some time ago, an ethics lecture at seminary. But, but I am wanting us to hear three clear positions. One says there shall never be abortion under any circumstances because you're murdering the life of the child. The other says the mother has the right to decide always. I think we as a church find ourselves somewhere between the two. Where we are talking about the value of the child, but we cannot ignore the value of the life of the mother. And once we do that, it becomes a really difficult pastoral discussion, but a necessary discussion that weighs up, is the life of the mother of value? I'll take you to the United Methodist Church in a moment because there are official statements from the United Methodist Church. But before I go on, anyone want to throw a comment at me? Tell me where I missed something. <laughs> In some parts of Jewish tradition, it's a wonderful tradition, 
that life begins at the first breath. Yeah, you're right. Um, we can, and I'll give Larry a chance to chip in, because there's been agonized debate about when does life actually start? Is that a real life in the womb, or does life only happen when that child is born? Um, the downside of it, and I think we really struggled when we discovered that during World War II, Nazi Germany were experimenting on the life in the mother in the womb. And, and those who were experimenting on these babies in the womb got away with it by saying, well, they weren't really, they're not really human. They, it's still a fetus. I, I'm trying to avoid using the word fetus because fetus can become a dehumanizing label. The moment you refer to something as a fetus, it's not quite human. And I have seen parts of the world where you can experiment on a fetus, you can't experiment on a baby. Language is very powerful stuff. And, and my dilemma is the moment you use fetus, it's not quite a baby. And so it's not really life, or is it life? It, it's, Nancy's right. And, and I, I hope you're hearing the dilemma of the messiness of this. Comments? Just to add that, that as you've just spoken about, is the unborn child a child or not, um, shows us just the complexity of every single human situation. Um, it's what we have to deal with all the time. What is the moral choice, the moral and the ethical choice? It's never simple. Larry, come talk to us, brother. I'll talk to us in a minute about where, how the United Methodist Church has landed up where it is. It's interesting from a, from a philosophical standpoint. You know, they do, they do differentiate various stages of development. You know, a fertilized egg is referred to as a zygote, okay? And it's little more than, I think they call it a blastoma, a small collection of cells. So um, it's eight or nine weeks before there's a detectable heartbeat, okay. Um, it's probably 16 to 20 weeks before there's brain activity. Okay, so at what point would you say does this become a person? Um, one of the things that you pointed out, Pete, in the, uh, in the handout that you're using here is in the Old Testament, if a person was involved in a crime against another person and it resulted in, you know, a spontaneous abortion of the mother, um, that was not considered murder. The person who caused that was not taken out and stoned. It was considered as something less than murder. So it's very, very morally complex. Um, 
one of the things that concerns me about the pro-life movement is so much of it is what I call pro-birth. Okay, if you're really pro-life, then I think you would also say, let's get rid of the death penalty. All right? Because that would be a pro-life stance. And when this child is born, let's make sure that that child has adequate nutrition, adequate housing, adequate care, opportunities for development. But so much of the church I see that takes what I call a pro-birth position wants to wash its hands of all of those things. So where is our responsibility? By what right can we tell a woman what she must do? And this is the part of it that bothers me too, is the legislation, legislating a moral position. And uh, yeah, I understand some of the reasoning behind that, but I see a great deal of inconsistency in terms of positions. And uh, that inconsistency concerns me. Also, depending upon your moral framework, your philosophical framework, you could, you could approach this from the standpoint of a utilitarian. What action will promote the greatest amount of good over pain or suffering? Well, in some cases, that's not really clear cut. You would have to say in some cases, it would be the abortion. In other cases, no. So it's, it really is not clear cut. Um, and then you come down to, you know, of course, natural law theories and uh, the view of life, that all life is sacred, etc. that these are divine commandments that we are looking at. Okay, but there are different moral perspectives that people bring to this debate, which makes it even more complex. But... Um, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, in terms of my own personal perspective, I abhor abortion, okay? But I would never feel that it's my right to demand that a woman is denied her freedom to make decisions about her own body and the bodily processes involved with it. Ideally, in an ideal world, in, quote, God's kingdom world, we would never have abortions with the exception of a few cases where a mother's life was completely endangered. Okay. Perhaps a few cases of incest, rape. Is it reasonable to expect that a person, a young woman, is going to carry a baby to full term that results from incest or from rape? Are we doing more damage to that individual? So by what right do we have to make that, that demand, to levy that sort of demand on that person? But um, still, you know, we recognize it. Um, 
it is indeed, you know, I, I fully submit to the idea of the sanctity of life. So the older I get, the more I want to extend that to other species and, you know, other things like that too. So, Pete? Oh, yes. Rules make things simple. For the rule yeah, for the rule maker. Okay. Or if you just blindly accept a rule, then your job is done. I can just act. But, you know, my favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, says in major ethical decisions, we can literally wrestle from one side to the other side. He said, we can deliberate, we can deliberate, we can deliberate. But at some point in time, we have to say, I commit to this action, Lord bless it. But you can, you know, if you have a creative mind, you can find all kinds of reasons for both sides. Even in terms of utilitarianism, try to figure out what's the greatest good for the greatest number. Well, where do you stop the figuring? Where do you draw the boundaries? Do you draw it strictly with the individual? With the couple? With their extended family? With the community? With the world? Where do you draw the boundaries? And how do you compute these measures of goodness over evil? Actually, utilitarianism was started for the purpose of criminal justice reform. And it was thought that if we could introduce just a little bit more pain than pleasure, we could prevent people from committing crime. And, and when it came to be, actually the situations in England were that, at that time were such that capital punishment could be imposed for stealing a loaf of bread. So utilitarianism did add something to the argument, okay, but it it doesn't really simplify it when you get down to raising the questions of where do we draw these lines? What are the spheres of influence that we're working with? So, Pete? I'm going to throw the grenade to you. Okay. Why is this such a hot issue in, America, in the USA? Ah. Interesting. Um, I think a lot of it boils down to, again, uh, certain religious principles, religious views. Thou shalt not kill. Well, how do we mean that? There are times, you know, and, and one of my favorite examples here is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great priest, great minister in Germany, was safe here in the United States, returned to Germany, 
as a part of the confessing church, came out very strongly against the Nazis and participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler. Now, obviously, he was looking at that from the standpoint somewhat of a utilitarian. If we can get rid of this evil person, perhaps we may limit the amount of evil. But think of the wrestling that this man had to go through to come to that decision. No easy decision. And I think, I think a part of it, too, it has become so politicized. And let's face it, politics and power go hand in hand. And in the roughly the 1980s, there began to be a conservative movement where certain portions of the church wanted to seize and to exercise political power. And that was very much their goal. They're still operating under that goal. In contrast to that point of view, let me share with you another point of view from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi in England for roughly 22 years. As a lord, he was a member of the House of Lords. He said, I never once voted. He had power. He could have exercised power, but the power that he chose to exercise was moral suasion. He said, it's my responsibility to influence those who are in the halls of power. But I think he realized that in the way that power can corrupt, we can look at it as, um, you know, power in the service of the good, and there are times when, yes, that's the case. But I will, will say it until the day I die. The three great idols of our time are wealth, power, and prestige. Those are the things that we routinely put in God's rightful place. And unfortunately, the church is not above making gods of all three of them. And I think we have a lot of confessing to do in terms of the fact that in many instances we have and we use them as though they are our gods. Are you okay with, with where Larry took us? Because I fear we're going to disappoint you if you came here looking for a rule. Because I've, I've landed us in the middle. I've landed us in a place of saying we need to value that life in the womb, absolutely. But we need to value the life of the mother, absolutely, as well. It's not an either or. It's both and. And the moment you go there, it literally requires that every case is uniquely weighed up. 
every case is uniquely prayed over and wrestled over. And where I want to touch base with Larry is where I touch base with myself. Of having sat with women who've had abortions and the terrible moral dilemma they found themselves in. I have yet to meet someone who treated abortion as birth control. I, I don't think, I really don't think that exists, that sense of, oh, well, it's just another birth control method. In some countries, it is strictly a means of birth control. In Russia, it's very much a means of birth control. And when I was living and working in Russia, I met women who had had several abortions just simply as a means of birth control. Of course, that was, you know, very much an atheistic system, a very different value system than what we have here. But in that value system, that was very common. Yeah. In China, the one-child one policy, um, which they have recently moved away from, but I can remember in 1973 when I was in the Air Force reading a secret document about the one-child policy in China. That was not open at that time for, for wide dissemination. But, um, and what, what's happened there now is because of that, um, many people, they only wanted a son. So consequently, young women were euthanized. And uh, they have something like, you know, I forget how many million males that basically there's no female companions available for them. Another social problem. I'm going to just walk us through where the United Methodist Church lands, and what I have here is lifted directly from United Methodist Church policy. I didn't want to paraphrase, I wanted you to know. You can go to the website of the United Methodist Church, type in our position on abortion, and this is what comes up. The United Methodist Church affirms the sanctity of life in these two statements in the social principles. Number one, our belief in the sanctity of unborn human life makes us reluctant to approve abortion. Number two, we are equally bound to respect the sacredness of the life and well-being of the mother and the unborn child. These statements and others place the United Methodist position on abortion firmly on the spectrum of life-based ethics rather than choice-based ethics. Life-based ethics place life at the center of guidance regarding situations where there may be conflict. Life-based ethics call for as much life as possible to be honored and preserved in such situations. United Methodists affirm the sanctity of unborn human life. We similarly understand that the pregnant woman is also a life of sacred worth and that there are circumstances in which there may be tragic conflicts of life versus life. This may happen to any pregnant woman anywhere at any time in her pregnancy. Critical to preserving life is ready access to proper medical care. 
This includes access to medical care that may include abortion, when that is the way to preserve the most life possible. That is why the social principles affirm, quote, in such cases we support the legal option of abortion under proper medical procedures by certified medical providers. Additional official statements, the United Church expressed the denomination's life-centered ethics. The United Methodist Church does not affirm abortion as a means of birth control. We also unconditionally reject abortion as a means of gender selection or eugenics. And we reject late-term abortions except where the mother's life is in danger or in cases of severe fetal abnormalities incompatible with life. When addressing an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, we particularly encourage adoption as an option. When a woman selects adoption as the outcome of her pregnancy, the social principles encourage churches to assist her with appropriate resources and support. We understand the need for women to have access to safe legal abortions but we mourn and are committed to promoting the diminishment of high abortion rates. We encourage ministries that reduce unintended pregnancies such as sex education, access to voluntary family planning, contraception, and initiatives that enhance the quality of life for all women and girls around the globe. Finally, United Methodists are committed to ministering with those who've had an abortion, providing support and encouragement. Whatever situation led to a decision to abort, there's always much loss and much need for healing. And my final comment, just to pull it together, it is absolutely unhelpful for us as a church to condemn abortion if we have not provided the kind of support and environment that might help diminish the need for abortion. We need to be involved in all the life-giving measures possible. I'm agreeing with Larry, you heard me. I am pro-life, I, I defend life at all costs. But that has to mean we need to provide sufficient life around that mother that might help her to make a decision not to abort. Some of which is adoption, but perhaps some of it might need to be the kind of sex education and family clinics that can prevent young girls from getting pregnant. Somehow, over the years, I've had the stream of parents come to me when I do sex education as part of the confirmation class to protest that it's not my place to be talking to their children about sex had a mother come and tell me, my daughter is only 14. She doesn't even think about such things. <laughs> you know, you, you get it. <clears throat> so they actually wanted me to wag my finger at the class and say, don't think about such things, which is in this world is impossible. They do. So let's rather give them the tools for wise decision making than land up land up literally alienating people, pushing them underground, making them guilt-ridden um, for lack of knowledge and lack of support and encouragement. 
There are churches that do not believe in contraception. Um, the Catholic tradition has strongly resisted contraception, which they've seen as an interference in life. It's a very difficult position to maintain because what you do is you, you then force young people just never to talk to you. You will never go, to, if, if that's your church's position, you'll never go to your church leaders for help because the church has said you are wrong. Brenda, talk to us. You're a nurse. Family planning is, a, is, is an option that is available in Brookings. Um, it's been here for many, many years um, in various forms, um, staffed by physicians and nurses who also do community health um, care uh, for families that need that support. I believe in family planning because they do just that. They provide the education and provide the, um, provide the uh, ways and means for people to have access to, to uh, what they need for the decisions that they're making. So I think it's a valuable service and um, it is not a service that that promotes abortion. That's not their purpose to promote abortion. They all are, although there to help a woman who comes in who finds herself in a position of being pregnant and not planning that pregnancy. Uh, to they are there to help her find resources in the community, whether it's through her church or through um, visiting with physicians. Um, but to help her make the best decision for herself and that child that is yet unborn um, in, uh, in that circumstance. So, uh, but family planning primarily is here to do just that, help people plan and be safe and uh, take care of their bodies. I should probably explain the reason I'm wearing this mask is I think I'm coming down with a bit of a cold and I don't care to share that with others. So um, I used a good amount of hand sanitizer before coming and uh, donned my mask, but um, I didn't want to let Pete down by not showing up. So um, one of the things, I, I ran off a copy of the summary of general convention resolutions on abortion and women's reproductive health from the Office of Government Relations of the Episcopal Church. And there's a great deal of commonality, as you would expect, between the United Methodist position and the Episcopal position. But one thing that did stand out to me is this statement. At the same time since 1967, the Episcopal Church has maintained its unequivocal opposition to any legislation on the part of the national or state governments which would abridge or deny the right of individuals to reach informed decisions about the termination of pregnancy and to act upon them. 
So that's been a position of the Episcopal Church since 1967. So. I'm, <clears throat> I'm agreeing. I'm picking up with what Larry put on the table. My problem with a state passing legislation that says you may not under any circumstances have abortion is it shuts down my capacity to sit with congregation members and help them think about their lives and think about themselves before God because this thing has now been driven underground. There's no space to have any discussion whatsoever. And so I will have congregation members crossing state lines and never talking to me for fear that they're breaking the law here. And that's when you land up with young women. Well, I would hope they'd cross state lines, or else they go downtown here and look for some backstreet so-called abortion specialist, which is even worse. I come from a country where we had this debate for a long time. South Africa has legalized abortion under, under conditions around the health of the mother. But we recognized the number of young girls who were dying from backstreet abortions. It was a frightening number. Um, doctors made pleas to government and said, we have to have a system of legalized abortion because we are dealing with damaged young girls trying to sew their bodies back together because they're finding abortions in the most horrific conditions. And so it got framed in my country as part of a life-saving convention. Offer people abortions, offer them under very strict, um, strictly defined rules, and in that way we save life because there was a thriving industry of so-called abortion aunties. And you knew, you went to this auntie and she would do whatever with a knitting needle. It's dreadful, dreadful stuff. <clears throat> I fear it will happen here if it becomes this banned thing that we're not allowed to talk about. I fear for those many young girls who will then figure other ways. Um, and, and I've seen the dreadful consequences of that. The other situation that we have happening here um, is the fact that abortion will now be available to women with money. It will not be available to the poor. But if a woman has money to travel to another state where an abortion is legal, then that can take place. So it introduces a certain level of economic inequality into our society. Okay. Um, the other thing, too, uh, that I would point out, so much of this debate is focused toward the woman, not the male. What do you think would happen within our society if um, women were in power and they passed a law that said before any male could have intercourse with a female that he must undergo genetic testing to assure that there were no birth defects. 
Think of the hue and cry that would arise all over. Men would be in the streets, they'd be protesting, etc. You get the picture. But we have lived in a male-predominated society for years and years, and you can't tell me that part of this is not the product of that, that very issue. So, which leads us to women's rights. So if I can just, I'll pull it together with a story that kind of illustrates this. <clears throat> Many years ago, I arrived at a new congregation, a fairly rural, fairly conservative congregation, and my first church leaders meeting, I got presented with a list of names and these were the young girls who had fallen pregnant and they were not married. And the church council, as had been their custom for I don't know how long, uh, was suspending their membership because they were now pregnant and they could not come back to church until they'd had the baby. And they were expected to come to the church council and apologize for bringing shame on the church. Wait, wait, I'm not finished. I'm not finished. So, so I look at this list and I notice there's something missing from the list. It's only a list of girls. So I look up and I say, so where are the boys? Because it takes two to make a baby. And there was this shocked silence. And I realized, and I was looking at my church leaders who were all men. There were no women. I oh, know there was one, the chair of the women's uh, auxiliary. So, so I said, if we're going to do this, and by the way, it wasn't in the Methodist church's rules. It was like local custom. I said, we can do this only if you'll give me the names of all the guys. And they shall be equally suspended, and they shall equally come and apologize. And I heard this kind of strangled a comment from one of my leaders, but we've never done it like that before. <laughs> After the meeting, I got told that my senior steward, the, the senior leader in the church, his son, his name would have to come on the list as well. Unbeknown to me, but they just said, can we just leave this for a moment and go back and think about it? There was so much resistance to putting the guys there. I used to teach for uh, an evangelical, very conservative university. And um, at the end of one of my philosophy classes, the students were supposed to write a philosophy of life paper. And I was reading one of those papers. And a young female shared with me that she had a real problem. She was pregnant, not married. Uh, she was Caucasian, the man was black, um, her parents were very racist, I later came to find out, but the school had advised her that um, if she returned to campus in spring semester, she couldn't live on campus. And um, however, the male student, no problem there male student could live on campus. And um, 
So my wife, and it was a different wife at that time, we opened our home to her and gave her a place to stay. And it was, it was very healing for her. Some good things came about it in terms of the disparity. The young male was assigned another person on campus that he had to report to, and I think he reported for all of three weeks. And then, well, we can dispense with these meetings now. But of course, her, quote, punishment was that she was not to be basically on campus for any reasons other than to attend her classes. And um, so when the baby was born, in talking with the, her father, a little bit later, um, he shared with me, he said, you know, I used to be terribly racist. He said, the first moment I held that baby, that began to melt. She made the decision to have the child. It was interesting because roughly 20 years later, <clears throat> I had a student in one of my classes, and she went home and she shared with her mother how much she was enjoying the philosophy class, and she says, who's your professor? And she gave him my name, and she says, that's the professor I've told you about all these years that took me in. So it was her daughter that I was teaching. And uh, she has since had a couple of other daughters, outstanding young women. And, uh, but just, again, that disparity of treatment that we see in the religious community all too often. Um, I'm happy to say I no longer have any affiliation with that university whatsoever. That ended because they started to complain about my teaching on the issue of homosexuality. So that's another issue. Yeah. You are such a failure, you know I that. Know <laughs> I love every minute of it. <laughs> I want to pull this together. Uh, there is a board going around, just for Gretchen's sake, because she keeps accounting, if you can just put your name down. I want you to hear my position. I am pro-life. I will defend every baby and the right of every baby to be born. But I will equally defend the mothers and the health of the mothers and the right of a mother to look after her health. Once I do that, I put myself in this very difficult position that requires me to pray with each and every person. I will not be giving you a Bible text as an easy way out. To link with where we came from last week, and please do note, as a follower of Jesus, Jesus never said anything about abortion, ever. But Jesus did tell us to live lives of love. Jesus was insistent that love is the highest priority in our living. Let us never lower that standard. And thank you for joining me. Larry, would you pray for us, please? God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to discuss current issues in our society. 
issues which tend to pull us apart, issues which tend to make us forget the message that Jesus Christ gave us, that there's another way of life, the way of love, in opposition to the way of violence. Help us, Father, as we wrestle with that, that way of love. May we penetrate it more deeply. May we understand it more deeply. May we live it more fully. And help us to realize, too, that at times love demands that we step up and that we take the really hard road. May we not avoid that, but may we accept those roads knowing that in doing so, we contribute to your glory and to the building of the kingdom of God. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Pastor Pete. To get every episode delivered to you, Subscribe to this podcast for free and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can always find information about our services and outreach on our website at brookingsmethodist.org and on our Facebook page, Brookings First United Methodist Church. On behalf of the pastors of Brookings First United Methodist Church, thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was produced by Sam Becker on behalf of First United Methodist Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Intro and outro music was performed by Ted DeLang under CCLI license number 936719, streaming plus license number 2103961. Visit brookingsmethodist.org for more information.